Surf is a Real Podcast. This is the podcast where your host has lost his voice, but also it's the podcast where we explore elements of the scriptures that have made them become real to us because we want to draw more power out of the scriptures. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I hope you'll bear with me as I uh, am a bit hoarse today. I've put off doing this for three days, hoping my voice would come back, and it has come back a little bit, but not completely, so you're just going to have to bear with me through this. I apologize. This is uh, a special edition where we're going to talk about a number of things that have to do with Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur is uh, from sundown on Tuesday, October 4th to sundown on Wednesday, October 5th. So uh, if you want to listen to this on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, that would be completely appropriate. But you can listen to this whenever you want. And we're going to touch on two Isaiah passages that ha- touch on Yom Kippur. So one of the traditional readings for Yom Kippur that many people will read on the morning of Yom Kippur, and let's just say what Yom Kippur is. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. Yom is Day, Kippur is Atonement, or to cover. It's the highest and holiest day in uh, the all of the Jewish festivals that the Lord gave them. It is the one day of the year where the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, symbolically representing all of Israel being reunited with the presence of God or being able to regain that presence, something that's very meaningful to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as well. On this day, uh, there was a goat that was sacrificed, uh, and the blood of the sacrifice was also uh, put on the altar and on the priest, uh, the high priest, and so on. Uh, but the high priest also then did that and and put um, his hands on the head of another goat and transferred symbolically all of Israel's sins to that other goat. And then the goat was driven out to the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat, symbolically carrying all of Israel's sins with it and thus making Israel sinless and able to come into the presence of God. There's some some fantastic symbolism in there. I hope you'll bear with me as I will frequently be pausing to drink a little something to make it so I can keep talking. It's also the the most solemn day of fasting in the year for uh, anyone keeping the law of Moses. And so it should be no surprise to you that the the reading, one of the readings that uh, many Jews will do on the day of Yom Kippur is Isaiah 57, 14 through 58, 14. Um, because, of course, uh, 58 speaks about fasting and what a real fast is. And we've talked about that in two other episodes, so I'm not going to spend time on that uh, other than to think of the role then of fasting in our approach to God and our trying to be reunited with God and the symbolism behind fasting and denying ourselves of those worldly things and putting God's will above our own and taking care of others and afflicting our soul are all part of this journey to be with God again. It's also worth noting that Isaiah 57, which is last week's reading for Come Follow Me, but I hope we can still appreciate it, uh, verse 14, which is where the, the Yom Kippur reading starts, starts with, uh, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So 
this reading starts out with the notion that God is preparing a way for us to be with him again. He maintains that he is holy and in a holy place, but that he is making a way for us to be with us again if we will be humble and contrite. And of course, then the Holy One of Israel will help to make that possible. And uh, that's also many of the themes in chapter 58. But I want to jump to chapter 61 which has a different, it's not traditionally read on the Day of Atonement, but it has a very strong and important Day of Atonement connection that also is um, associated with the New Testament. So you'll recognize these verses as the verses that the Savior read in the synagogue of Nazareth. So you could go to Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21 um, to read this where he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Now, actually, he doesn't, or at least it's not recorded in Luke, that he reads the part that says the day of vengeance of our God, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But the rest of this he reads. Now, this is important, and it clearly has messianic associations because it talks about the Lord hath anointed me, and that's what Messiah means, is to be an anointed one. So it has messianic aspects to it, and his audience recognized that. But there's another reference that we often miss. This is a very, very clear reference to what is known as the Jubilee year. You can read about the Jubilee year in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 24. And uh, the Savior actually even paraphrases from verse 10, where it says to proclaim liberty. But in any case, this is what the Jubilee year is about. Every seven years, there's supposed to be some forgiving of dead and letting captives go and so on. But after seven rounds of seven years, which is 49 years, on the next year, the 50th year, it's a Jubilee year. And on that day, on the Day of Atonement, the trumpet was to, to sound, declaring the jubilee and proclaiming liberty to the captives. On this year, uh, all debt is to be forgiven. All captives are to be let go free. And that's how you preach good tidings unto the meek. It's how you proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. That's the, the acceptable year. The Jubilee year is the acceptable year. And so uh, this verse would be associated with the Day of Atonement because it's on the Day of Atonement in the 50th or Jubilee year that they would uh, proclaim this. And so that's significant and I think worth thinking about on the Day of Atonement. Um, but it's also worth understanding how we might think about this in terms of the Savior, because really the Savior is the one who makes a real Jubilee year possible, a real acceptable year, a year when our time, when we will be set free from our bondage to sin, when Christ, who pays the price, allows us all to escape that bondage, the bondage of death and hell, and allows us then on the Day of Atonement, everyone can experience the presence of God at some point instead of just the high priest representing us. One day, we will all be able to experience God's presence. And that's because of the he who was anointed to do this. So I think that's worth thinking about. 
It's very, very important. Of course, we all have a role to play in this. Uh, we all have a role in helping to proclaim liberty and freedom for everyone. And this is true in the way that the Jubilee focused on for those who are um, captive in various ways because they are poor or in bondage of one kind or another. Uh, it is our role to help those who have no food, who uh, have not enough money, who uh, are in bondage in one way or another to escape that, including bondage to sin, bondage to addictions, uh, bondage to whatever else. We all have a role to play in helping us and helping people to be freed from those things. And sometimes that role will be in helping people come to Christ so that he can free them. But there are some things we can do ourselves, such as help feed the poor and clothe the naked and so on. Uh, so that's that's a really important element to think of. There's another important element to this. I think that there's it's not a coincidence that the Savior did not quote during his mortal ministry the part that said the day of vengeance of our God. He was not fulfilling that in his mortal ministry. That day would come later. So he didn't quote it that day. He wouldn't say this day is that part of the scripture fulfilled in your ears. That wasn't part of his mortal ministry. We only get a glimpse of some of the Savior's roles and some of his personalities and characteristics and attributes if we read the Gospels, because his mortal ministry was about some things, not about all things that Christ or Jehovah will do. And so uh, we need to keep in mind that there is more to this and that the day of vengeance will eventually come. And maybe we can uh, understand this a little bit better if we turn to something that we'll be reading in about two weeks. And that's uh, something that happens in Jeremiah 34. In verses 8 through 10, we have an example of the leaders of all Israel setting at liberty all those who were commanded to go free. It was a jubilee year, and they did it, but they didn't really do it. So you get that story in verses 8 through 10, but in the next verse, verse 11, you read about them actually undoing it. So they did it on a day because they're supposed to do it on that day, and the next day they reclaimed their servants and slaves and the land that they'd taken and so on and so on. Um, and then the Lord makes it clear that because they failed to proclaim liberty, ironically, they would be brought into captivity. Because they would not help others experience liberty, they would lose their liberty. And I think that's an important element to remember, and that's part of why there will be a day of vengeance. Right? Jeremiah promises that because they did not really keep the jubilee, they would experience the vengeance of God. And this highlights why we would, uh, why we might ever experience the vengeance of God. When we oppress His children, then we will experience His vengeance. When we help to redeem His children, then we experience His blessings. And that's some really powerful imagery, I think. Really, really powerful imagery. Let's keep going in chapter sixty-one. We get to verse three, and you'll start to see some imagery that is both. Um, reversing covenant reversals. So we've talked about covenant reversals before. When you break the covenant, then you get the opposite of the blessings. And Isaiah has described that happening. Now he's going to describe reversing it again and the blessings coming. So verse three, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the joy, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now, 
you remember that in um, chapter three and spilling over a little into chapter four, when it talked about the daughters of Zion, that they were given ashes or burning for beauty. Now they're getting beauty for ashes. And instead of mourning, the kind of mourning that was described in the last verse of chapter three, they get joy and they're going to get the beautiful garments. In some ways, this is undoing the captivity that they experienced in Babylon and so on. Uh, this, it's, it's beautiful stuff as we see the, the fulfillment of covenant blessings. Let's keep reading this in verse four. We'll see the same thing. And they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. You see how, again, this is uh, there is, after covenant reversals or cursings, we lose the covenant cursings, and we get the covenant blessings. So the places that had once been populated and then became waste will now be built up again, and places that become desolate shall be repaired, and people will live there. And so you have all this covenant fulfillment imagery. Verse 5 and 6, and strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the alien shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But ye shall be named. Well, let's just stop there, um, and then we'll read verse 6 in a second. It's interesting. Uh, we have had this theme for several chapters before this, that everyone is encouraged to join the covenant and make the covenant, but you can only be saved if you are part of the covenant. So verse 5 is describing those who once oppressed Israel, who then opted not to be part of the covenant. They didn't opt in, as it were, uh, and they chose not to be part of the covenant. So they will now be Israel's servants. Uh, they, they have the opportunity, strangers and aliens are non-Israelites, okay? So they have the opportunity to partake of the covenant, but those who choose not to will be the servants of the Israelites as the Israelites were once their servants. Uh, and this is uh, just good reason to make and keep the covenant, right? Verse six, but ye, meaning covenant Israel, shall be named the priests of the Lord or the priests of Jehovah. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentile and in their glory shall you boast yourselves. So again, at some point, all Gentiles have the opportunity to be part of the covenant, but those that don't will become subservient to covenant holders. I think this is probably largely in the hereafter, but in some ways it happens uh, in, in our day. Verse 7, for your shame you shall have double, and for your confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Uh, therefore, in their land they shall possess the double, everlasting joy shall be unto them. So, uh, under the law of Moses, there are certain things that when people have uh, offended you or harmed you in some way, they have to repay you a double portion. And that seems to be what's happening here, that um, people who have oppressed Israel will now, Israel will be paid back double for that. Verse 8, and we'll end um, on verse 8 here. For I, the Lord, love judgment. Now, we have to remember that judgment means making things the way they're supposed to be. You reach out and you take care of and you help people. When you proclaim liberty, when you help someone become free by helping them overcome an addiction to pornography or helping them overcome uh, captivity to depression or help them overcome um, poverty uh, in little ways like microloans or in uh, feeding them or in helping them all sorts of ways that we help people overcome poverty or whatever you help, especially spiritual bondage, helping them come to Christ. 
when you've done that, you've done judgment. And he says, for I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. It's just beautiful stuff and, and wonderful to know that Christ was and is proclaiming that he will set us free that he will be the one that gives us liberty. But of course, we all have a role to play in that, but he will give us liberty. He will make it so that we can be freed from every kind of bondage, and he will make it so we can be reunited with our Father in heaven again. In the true Jubilee year, we can regain his presence because Christ fulfills the covenant. And of that I testify, and for that I express immense gratitude in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.